Let's continue to worship with a reading from Romans chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. How's everyone doing? Good morning. Glad you're here. Uh, I'm, I'm Chris. I'm the pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad that you made it today. Uh, we are starting a new conversation uh, that we're just calling Formed. Uh, one of our values here at this church is um, formation. It's one of our values, uh, formation. What does that mean? Uh, basically, um, if you have a pulse, if you are alive right now, um, you are changing. Like right now, you're changing. It's true physically. Um, you will keep losing your hair. Um, your, apparently, your nose and your ears will never stop growing until you look like the grandpa from Up. Um, so if you're alive, you're changing. It's true physically. And guess what? It's true spiritually. You are not the same person you were 10 years ago, hopefully for the better. But, you know, maybe not. When we say formation is a value, what we mean is a reality of life is that you are, present tense right now, being formed. You're being formed. Everything, y'all, everything you do, everything you experience, everything you give your attention to, every practice, every habit, every thought is forming you into a kind of person. And there's two obvious questions when we talk about this formation of our souls. The first obvious question, if all that's true, the first obvious question is who or what are you being formed into? Like, just let me lay this on you right now. If you changed nothing about your life, like let's just say you just froze exactly how you are, same habits, same attitudes, same thinking patterns, who would you be in 10 years? Some of us are on a trajectory right now where in 10 years we would be an absolute tyrant. We would be an absolute selfish narcissist because of the habits and the patterns of thinking that we tolerate in our life. Others of us would say, you know what? No, I think if I didn't change anything from right now until 10 years, I'd be a pretty awesome person. Well, good for you. Number two, so what are you being formed into? Number two, here's the other obvious question when we talk about the formation of our character and who we are becoming. Do you believe that you can take an active role in the formation of who you are becoming? Do you believe that you can take an active role or are you simply a victim? Are you a victim to your family of origin, to the genetics that were given to you, to your personality disposition, to your socioeconomic status, like a kid on a raft being tossed to and fro by the waves, helpless? Is that the picture of the formation of your soul, of who you're becoming? That you're just this helpless victim to all the forces that are cultural and social and economic forces that have been forced on you that you had no say in the matter. Are you a victim? Almost every week, y'all, one of the things I'm pleading with you is to take an active role in who you are becoming. Listen, when we come to the Bible, um, we see all these uh, commands. You guys notice this? 
<laughs> a lot of commands in the Bible, a lot of encouragement, a lot of instructions. It's like, hey, live this way. Think this way. Don't do this. Think this way about that. The Bible is full, y'all, of pleadings. Choose life. You ever heard that one? Choose forgiveness. Choose faith. On repeat, over and over and over again. Even the word Torah, the old Pentateuch, right? It means instruction. It means teaching, guiding, guidance, right? Think about it. Think about it. If you were simply a victim of your surroundings, of your family of origin, of your genetics, it makes the Bible completely irrelevant. Like, if you didn't have a choice in the matter, why, on repeat, would there be over and over and over pleading, 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 come, let's reason together, says the Lord in Isaiah. The path is before you. Choose this day who you will serve. If anyone believes, he'll be saved. Y'all, the whole story of the Bible is predicated on a choice in the garden. Remember that story, right? Don't take from the knowledge of good and evil, but instead trust God as to what is good and evil. So you could say the Bible is on repeat inviting you to take an active role in who you are becoming by the power of agency that apparently you have been given in the image, in the image of God. You know, It means you can choose. You have volition. You have choice. You, my friend, you, my friend, have a choice in who you are becoming. Or you could say it this way, you ain't a victim, sister. Brother, you ain't a victim. You're not a victim. You have choice. You were created with volition and responsibility and agency, all right? Through and through, God, uh, through and through, the Bible is going to, through narrative, through history, through sometimes just straight out saying it, choose. <laughs> choose this day, right now. Choose. You have a choice, man. It's, it's empowering you read the Bible. It's why the Bible's revolutionized societies throughout history. It's this kind of power the Bible gives us that you can change, that you have the authority, the power. You've been given that rights as agency, as the image of God, right? The Bible's going to admit, it's not going to brush the, under the rug the fact that who you are right now may be a product of horrible choices, of bad family life, bad socioeconomic stuff you had no control of. Sure, sure, that's a reality, but the Bible's gonna maintain who you are becoming is a choice you get to make. No matter where you've come from, no matter what happened yesterday, God apparently has so acted in history, he has chosen, right, to make it possible for you at any moment to step into life. That's why Jesus would come on, on, uh, come on the scene and say things like, anyone anyone can step into this. If anyone has ears to hear, to any who would believe, right? The Bible is going to say on repeat, it doesn't matter your lineage. It doesn't matter how your culture views you. God can transform you if you will let him. In other words, because of what God has done, because of his choice, you're not a victim. Amen. You're not a victim. You, you can choose to be, but you don't have to be a victim. So when we say formation, <laughs> we're saying it on all of those fundamental assumptions, okay? With the practical question being, what influences, what cultural narratives, what cultural narratives, what practices, what truths, what habits are you allowing to form you? And what are they forming you into? We can say it this way. I just always want to remind you, if you don't take an active role in the formation of your character, you will wake up one day confused and angry about who you've become. I've had that day. That's a bummer of a day. It's not fun. 
when you wake up and realize your decisions and how you've responded to the uncontrollable circumstances in your life has turned you into someone who is profoundly disappointing. I've had that day. Because turns out, all the time, all the choices, all the little nuanced things that we think don't matter in life are forming you. All the things you give your attention to, all the hours you spend in the evening, when you have nothing else to do, what do you do? All right, well, that's forming you, friend. It's turning you into a kind of person that, if I may say so, in our society and culture, believes that entertainment is the pinnacle of all of life. The kind of habits and practices that most Americans partake of would point to the reality that we believe that entertainment is the greatest fulfillment and satisfaction that we can ever achieve in this life. What are your habits doing to you? Are they turning you into the kind of person who just believes that I'm here to be entertained? Are they doing something else? Can they do something else? So what we want to get after in this conversation on formation is primarily what is the gospel? How does it form us? And for what purpose? So today we focus on what is the gospel? Now, we need to stop. We need to stop right now. Because the question that I just asked, what is the gospel, caused half of you to turn your brains off. Because you're a Christian, and you already know the gospel. And ugh, I've heard this a billion times, which I totally get. Dude, I'm a PK, I right, pastor's kid. I grew up in church, preaching to the choir. I totally get it. When we say, what is the gospel, do we mean, what are the things you need to know? Is that what we mean? Is the gospel the same as arithmetic? Is it just knowledge? Is that all it is? I mean, it is knowledge, but is that all it is? Because if all it is is knowledge, then yeah, this is boring, and I heard this before, and you already checked out. You're scrolling Amazon right now, although Amazon Day's already over, so you missed all the deals. Most of you could easily answer this question. Most of you could easily answer this question. What is skydiving? Yeah, it's a plane. Yeah, terrifying. You jump out. It's supposed to be a video. I don't know what's going on. You pull a little string. And the parachute comes out, theoretically. Um, there we go. You might know that um, you got to do a tandem first. Uh, maybe some of you could even describe terminal velocity, um, right? That's a kind of knowledge, isn't it? <laughs> but someone who's actually jumped, oh, I'm sorry. Someone who's actually bat crazy enough to jump out of a perfectly good plane, all right? Someone who's done it, someone who's experienced it, someone who's felt it, when they describe it, Wow, that's like, that's totally different than the person who just knows the science and the components behind it, right? And have never actually been dumb enough to jump out of a perfectly good plane. In fact, if those two people described it, right, it would almost sound like they're describing completely different things. You got a PhD in aerodynamics. He would describe all the technical aspects, the physical dynamics of flight and parachute, right? That's one way. Is that true? Yes. Do I want that guy around? Yes. Do I want that guy designing the plane, packing my parachute, designing? Yes, I want that guy around, right? But then you get another guy who barely made it through the third grade, and he's actually crazy enough to do it, right? And when he describes it, he says things like this. My heart, my heart was in my throat. I was terrified. Here's the most amazing, liberating experience. There's nothing like it's total freedom. After the parachute comes out, of course, right? Right? Total peace. Has anyone ever done it? When that parachute comes out, it's, it's so quiet. And yeah, sure, you're like having me thousands of feet down the air, but there's this sense of peace, right? 
Are they both describing skydiving? Yes, but we're talking about completely different muscles, y'all. Like I can get up here and I can describe to you the gospel over and over and over again, but trusting the gospel is a completely different muscle. When we say gospel, we do not mean intellectual knowledge, friend. If that's it, why are we here? Let's go home. No, the reality is, is that most of you know the dynamics and the reality of the gospel, but you've not trusted it, man. You've not experienced it. You've not jumped out. You've not made yourself a victim of the process. I want to be a victim of that, right? I want to be helpless in the hands of the gospel. But most of us, we know the gospel intellectually, but we do not know it experientially. And therefore, when we describe it, when we live our lives, it is utterly uncompelling to the world. I don't want another set of facts to memorize. I don't need a, another subject in my life, my arithmetic. I've failed that, right? I go to summer school several times, right? And now, now you're telling me that Christianity is just this intellectual knowledge that I have to memorize. Well, I've already flunked out of that, not interested. You understand what I'm saying? The ability to understand and articulate the gospel is vastly different. Dudes, I mean, this happens in ministry all the time, right? Moral failure of pastors, of spiritual leaders. Are we chatting here? What happened? They preached the most compelling sermons I've ever heard, all right? Like I've changed my life, the truth came out of their mouth, and dude was caught with a prostitute in a bathroom. Something disconnected, y'all. He was really good at this muscle. Some of us are so smart, right? So intelligent, can articulate it winsomely. That's wonderful. But have you actually jumped? Like, have you, have you submersed yourself in it? Has it formed you? Like, does your life depend on if that parachute comes out? Or is it all theoretical? And for so many of us, the gospel is theoretical. The truth of the Gospels are words on a page that we don't know. We can't figure out how to get it into our lives. It's dead intellectual knowledge. It does not form us. When we're talking about the Gospel, we are talking also about the nature of the Gospel. Is it simply historical? Is it simply intellectual? Or is it experiential? When we say, what is the gospel, we don't just mean what are the things you have to memorize. We're talking about what's the nature of it? What's the nature of it? Can you know it if you don't experience it? Can you know it if you can't intellectually explain it? Can you know it if you don't know the historical context of it? All of these things, all these three things, Josh, and apparently, according to the Bible, yes, <laughs> yes, it's all these things. It's historical, yes, it's intellectual, yes, and it is, it is experiential, yes, all at once. That's the claim of the Bible. And ignoring one of these three things, ignoring the historical aspects or the intellectual aspects or the experiential aspects gives you a truncated gospel. It gives you something that is less than the gospel. So let's start with the basics, the word gospel today. It's not used very much. I don't use it. Maybe unless you're trying to convince someone that you're telling the truth and you say it's the gospel truth. Um, the word, the biblical word of gospel, the Greek, translate, or the Greek word is euangelion. That just means good news. Look, every time you see gospel in the New Testament, it just means good news. It's the good news of whatever it's talking about, right? Like really good news. <laughs> really, really. Like paramount, wonderful, epoch-changing, good news. Good news of what? Well, I would say the gospel, the good news, it is the good news not just of the New Testament, y'all. Don't do that to yourself. The gospel is the good news of the entire Bible, the whole thing. The entire Bible is a, the good news is the biblical account of life. And let me tell you something, brother. It's good news. It's good news. 
And it includes where you came from, what is wrong with the world, and the solution, how to fix it. The gospel first and foremost says that you, my friend, my brother and sister, you were created. You were created intentionally, wonderfully designed, right? Intentionally created. Other ancient stories about the creation of the cosmos. If you ever looked into Babylonian, Mesopotamian stories of creation, how did the world come into being? Many of them, especially the Babylonian story, extremely violent, extremely bloody. The, the Babylonian story of creation is that this god, Murdoch, Right? Basically got in a fight with a bunch of other gods because he was annoyed with them. Basically, he's like the god kids were making too much noise. They're like, oh, hold that down. And so they, they get in a fight, and Murdoch rips open a dragon god, and he makes the earth and the heavens out of the carcass of that god. That's the Babylonian story of creation. That's how they say this is how we came into being. Right? Our own scientific narrative of creation is full of violence. Survival of the fittest. Some people were stronger. They dominated, oppressed, exploited, destroyed the weaker. And lucky us, we lucked out humans. Y'all, our own narrative of creation is full of violence. The Bible's going to say, yeah, dude, you know, what's happening there? What's happening there? People are saying, I'm looking around. Okay, the earth is full of violence. Yeah, it sure is. The earth, is the earth full of the strong oppressing the weak? Absolutely. And so they think, oh, well, then creation must be similar. It must be that we came into being by some strong person oppressing and exploiting the weak. The Bible's going to say, yeah, all sorts of violence in the world, but you weren't made for that. You weren't made to die. You weren't made for violence. You weren't made for scarcity and selfishness and survival of the fittest was not your original design. You were made, brother and sister, to flourish before the Lord, to, to be vibrant in life, to love, to exist in fullness, not some mitigated standard of existence where we're fighting one another. That's not the story of creation. That's not the story the Bible pulls out. The Bible is going to say that God created you not out of violence, but out of love and wisdom. That he, Proverbs 8 is going to say, he delighted over creation like a master engineer delights over his architectural work. What a different story than the Babylonian story, than our own story. You're not some cosmic accident. You were created on purpose. And guess what? The Bible also says that you, friends, were created good. Good. You were, in fact, when God creates man and woman, he says, very good. Right? Now, is that how you would describe the world we live in? Very good. Some Christians really struggle with this idea. I'm going to try to weave something in for right now. The world, as it is, is not the world God created it to be. Some of us are going to struggle with this one. What are you saying? God's not in control? You saying to some surprise God? No, dude, God is totally in control. But if you think the world as it is, is God's perfect will for the cosmos, then you have to say God's perfect will, perfect, was that Hitler killed a thousand, millions and millions of Jews, tortured, that's, that's God's perfect will? For the cosmos, is that what you're going to say? You're going to say that genocide and rape and exploitation and human mutilation is all God's? He, like, he's like, yeah, that sounds great to me. Because if you're going to say that, then you've got to make sense of 2 Peter 3.9, which says, which clearly shows that God had intentions that do not happen. This is difficult for some of us. Let's read it real quick. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. Does the Bible maintain that everyone's going to come to repentance? 
Does the Bible maintain that everyone is going to live forever? No. So apparently, there are things that go on in this world that is not God's perfect will. Permissive will, yes. Perfect will, no. In fact, there are things that go on in this world that the Bible's going to say grieves the heart of God, not his perfect will. How is that? If he is all-powerful and sovereign. How can that happen? Well, apparently, part of God's all-powerful, sovereign plan was giving you control. Giving you limited control, but control nonetheless. Y'all, the story of the Bible says God is the God who delegates. God is the God who delegates. He delegates authority. Let me read it to you. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have, say it. Dominion, y'all. Dominion. You've been given authority and dominion. And it's what we've done with it. Now, you see, you think, well, it's limited. It is limited. Yes, you are limited. I am limited. But it's pretty crazy, the damage that man has achieved with his limited authority. He has been given autonomy and the dignity of choice made in God's image, called to rule the earth on God's behalf, according to Genesis. The problem is not that God made a broken system. It's that he gave it to us. And we did what was good in our own eyes with it and refused to trust the wisdom in God. We refused to trust the abundance and the patience of God. And he allows us for a time to go on as we are, right? All the time, creating a way for us to repent and come back to life. This is the Christian notion of sin, y'all. Sin at its root is simply a belief that you know more than God. No one would ever say that because we're Christians, right? But sin at its root is simply a belief that you know more than God. The entire Old Testament is men, on repeat, defining good and evil for themselves instead of trusting God's definition of good and evil. This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They saw that it was good, and they took it. That language, saw that it was good and took it, is on repeat through the Old Testament, especially the book of Genesis. They, various people see something that is good in their own eyes, and they take it. And it's always a cue for you to know this is a failure story. David sees Bathsheba. Guess how, she, guess how he saw her as good and took her. Okay, there's language throughout the entire Bible, right? Now, every once in a while, someone would trust God throughout the Bible, right? Abraham, Noah, even David has his time of trusting God, but all of them never fully trust God. They fail. And the Old Testament creates this silhouette. It prophesies of this figure called the Messiah, the Christ, who would come and fully trust God, completely fully trust God's definitions of good and evil and not fail. And the whole Old Testament, according to Jesus in Luke 24, was all leading up to and foreshadowing what the Christ would do and how he would do it. That's how Jesus read the Old Testament, how this figure... Messiah, the Christ, would reverse the work of the snake, how he would crush it, how he would liberate people like Moses liberated the people um, from slavery in Egypt, how he would gather all the people to themselves from all the corners of the earth, how he would suffer and die to achieve God's purposes and extend God's righteousness to the many. Everything I just told you is foreshadowed in the Old Testament. It's all almost word for word, not quite, but pretty close, all right, as to what the Messiah would do. The remarkable thing about Jesus is that he claimed not simply to be a man, who could do all these things, but God himself. Now, this is a really remarkable claim of Jesus. And, and it means that God himself had to come down to us to lead us back to life if we would be led. This is one of the central claims of the Bible, right? 
Another central claim of the Bible tied it to this. Why? Why did God himself have to come down? Well, one of the other central claims of the Bible is that you and I have been so twisted inward from sin. Our, our own pride and arrogance have done such a number on us. You know, pride has rendered us blind and cripple and maimed and deaf, like blind men groping around in the dark, right? Like dead men. These are all figures, the Bible, metaphors the Bible gives us of what sin has done to us. That, that, that sin has impacted us so much that we are unable and incapable of flourishing no matter what we do. This is a hard pill to swallow when it comes to the gospel. And most of us say, well, I mean, that seems a little intense, right? But if you look at the life we live in, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> right? Even in our own relationships, it's pride that kills relationships, y'all. It's arrogance that makes us unable to listen to others. Pride is the thing that makes you lash out at others in offense and anger, even when they're trying to honestly help you. The same is true of us and the same is true of God. Pride is the cancer of the universe. Not just in some weird spiritual way between us and God, but between me and you. <laughs> it's pride that destroys all relationships. And the story of the Bible is that pride had such a death grip on us. We wouldn't listen. That God himself had to come to us in our own darkness, in our blindness, in order to help us. See, God had to make a choice first, didn't he? He could have left us. He could have let us wander around in darkness and grope about and try to figure it out and try to start our own fires, right? He could have left us, but the story of the Bible is that God did not, that God chose way before you choose, chose, chosen, choused, choused, way before you chose, God chose. He chose to reveal himself. He chose to love us. He chose to die in our place. And if, friend, you have never felt the helplessness of your own spiritual condition, if you've never had your mouth silenced, if you've never felt the utter nakedness and vulnerability of your own state before God, then maybe you know the idea of sin, like the guy who knows the idea of aerodynamics, but you've never exposed yourself to the reality of it personally in your own life, right? Not that humanity is sinful, like all of us, I mean, we'll just talk about that all day long, right? Yeah, they're messed up, everyone's, no, it's that I am sinful. See, that's the gospel as describing it uh, from the sidelines and the gospel as jumping off. Humanity is sinful, sure. No, no, no. The gospel is that you, friend, are sinful, crooked, bent. And if you've never felt the reality of that settle on you, then you've never jumped, man. You've only partaken in the gospel partly. You know knowledge, not experience, right? And I need to be 100% honest with you. If you've never felt God revealing the depth of your sinful nature, if your heart has never been broken because of your own pride, if you've never been stripped bare before God and felt the utter need and dependency that you have on him, I, I, I just don't know. I, I don't know if you, maybe, I guess you're a Christian, maybe intellectually, just not in real life. Maybe you're just intellectually a Christian. Listen, I'm not trying to be mean. Listen, here's the deal. I'm not sure if when we get to the pearly gates, we're going to meet Peter with a clipboard with some intellectual questions. And he's going to say, can you, can you quote John 3, 16? Check. Who is the mother of Jesus? Check. Got it. Define sin. Oh, good. Check. He was listening in that sermon. Great. Um, all right. Here's, a, here's, here's one for you. Here we go. Let's see if he gets this one. Was Jesus an American? <laughs> no. No, he was a Middle Eastern. All right. This guy checks out. Let him in. He might as well have asked, what's the airspeed velocity of an unladen swallow? 
because that's a Monty Python skit. It's not how reality works. It's not how relationships work. That's not how the fabric of the universe has been weaved together. That if you know something intellectually, you know it. Yeah, I'm, that, that's a product of standardized testing. God bless its name, okay? <laughs> not a product of the Bible, all right? <laughs> I do not care if you can preach the best sermon in the world on sin. The question is, has it formed you? Has it humbled you to the dust so that God can make you anew again, right? Because he can't heal you of your sin if you don't have any, right? Which brings us to God's remedy of the gospel. The narrative of the Bible is not God made it good, you screwed it up, but if you try harder, you can fix it. Y'all, the idea of sin just remedied us of that notion. Dead men can't fix things. Blind men can't try harder to see. It's that God himself came down to us, moved by compassion and love, that in Jesus, he raises us up from the grave and restores sight to our eyes, right? By his sovereign choice and power, he brings the light to us. He doesn't say, grope, do it in the darkness and do your best. He doesn't say, rub these sticks together and the really, really strong ones are gonna get the fire. He says, no, it's a lost cause. I've gotta come myself. See, we underestimate the nature of sin in the world and we think if we just try harder, we can muster it up. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that God, you were so twisted, so blind, that God himself had to come to you in your darkness. And the story of the Bible is that he did. The story of the Bible that Jesus, God himself, came to us in our darkness. What does it say? That a light has dawned on those who dwell in deep darkness. That's the gospel. I'm gonna sit up here and dance about it. Oh, y'all, y'all gotta give me something. Give me something, right? All right, so <laughs> some of you guys are so turned off by me right now. It's okay. <laughs> this, this truth of the gospel radically sets Christianity apart from every other religion. See, many people's understanding of the gospel is that it's basically the same as other religions. The gospel is basically the Christian advice on how to make yourself right before God. So Islam says you got to pray five times towards Mecca. Hinduism says, you know, light some incense and do some stuff. Christianity says go to church, read the Bible, acknowledge these intellectual ideas. And they're all basically the same. They're all just kind of advice on how to live. And if you're bright enough and smart enough and intelligent enough, then if you do it just right, you know, <laughs> just right. If you get your services just right, <laughs> if, you get your, if you get your Bible, just, you know, get all that stuff, you got the right translation of the Bible, you got to sing the right songs, you know, <laughs> got to read the right books. If you get it all just right, then God will accept you. See, I, God, I love you. I just described for many of us how we approach Christianity. We, get, we just got to get it right. And, and basically, guys, if that's the category, then Christianity is no different than the other religion. They're all basically the same. They're basically advice, and if you do these things well enough, God will accept you. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. At all. The Bible, the Bible is going to thoroughly explore two ways to be prideful and run from God. Stay with me. I got this from Tim Keller. Dude's brilliant. Two ways in which rebellion and sin and pride can grip you and form you and make you into a certain kind of person. And the first way is the more obvious choice. Uh, it's, the, it's the way that overlaps with other religions. The first way to reject God, the first way to sin and be prideful is by a clear rejection of God's ways, all right? So, you know, getting addicted to drugs and prostitution and being violent and a bully. Most religions will say, hey, that's no way to live, right? And this is why people say, well, Christianity is the same as all other religions because it's bad. But in the Bible... There is a second way to run from God in pride that is thoroughly explored in Scripture. 
and it's right in the midst of religious activity. It's this category that Jesus explores a, a, a ton, and in fact, gives us a category. He, he, he gives us this word, Jesus is the one, guys, who gave us this word hypocrisy. You know that? <laughs> and so this second way to run from God is by doing all the right things, having all the right habits and the right things, and knowing God's ways, and knowing about sin and about redemption, but refusing to let it form you. See, the older brother in the prodigal story who obeys God, he does all the right things and is equally condemned. Now, this is baffling. If Christianity is just advice, then, well, the older brother was doing all the right things. But we see this picture over and over in Scripture, people who are doing all the right things, reading the Bible, going to church, and yet are called things like whitewashed tombs by Jesus. See, the older brother, in the midst of all his good acts, failed to understand and experience the love and the mercy of the Father, although it was at his fingertips, according to the Father. The Father said, all I have is yours. So when the older son saw the love and the mercy and the graciousness of the Father clearly displayed to the younger son, he what? He scorns it. He sets himself, the older son, the religious one, set himself up against grace. Isn't that a fascinating picture? This guy's doing all the right things. And yet when the grace and the love of God is extended, he sets himself up against it. I know this seems totally backwards, right? That a Christian would set themselves up against the grace of God, but it happens all the time, right in the middle of religious activity. Why? Because the older son in his pride thought the father owed him. And many Christians are convinced that if they just do the right thing, if they don't do that one sin, that they'll get God in their debt. And that is not how it works. You cannot control the Almighty. Don't think if I do this or that, God will owe me. The gospel, actually, is that a rightness, a value outside of your performance, outside of your discipline, outside of your intellect has been given to you in Jesus. Outside of your works, outside of your obedience, outside of your efforts, God chose to forgive. Or you could say it this way, the gospel, the good news, is of total grace, all grace. The choice, friends, is will you accept it as gift or will you insist on earning it? We think often, we think of it in terms of, we think of religion in terms of how we reach up to God, right? But the Bible is going to say, actually, no one reaches up to God. No one seeks God, which kind of sounds dramatic, right? We're like, well, you surely, I mean, Chris, right? You probably seek God. Mm -mm. No, the Bible's serious. <laughs> um, you may seek religious advantage. You may seek what religion can get you, but we don't seek God for his own sake. No one does. No one loves God, apparently according to Romans. What we really want is what he can give us. And the gospel is that God had to initiate that existence and salvation are pure gift given outside of any religious effort. If that's true, y'all, it literally changes everything we know about Christianity. If that's true, that it was God who had to initiate and that existence and salvation are pure gift, now all religious action, obedience, serving the poor, loving the unlovely, volunteering at church, all of that is and only can be response to what God has already done. You see? Or you can say it this way. The gospel makes all Christian living worship, not works. Delight, not drudgery. Love, not law. Response, not initiative. No one initiates with God. He is the one who initiates with you and has already done it in Jesus, according to the Bible. 
The given rightness of God radically forms us because without it, y'all, without the given rightness of God, all you have to prove that you are someone is, guess what? Your performance. Your performance at work, your performance as a mom, your performance as an employee, your performance as an athlete. And when all we have is our performance, our lives are characterized by a deep, deep desperation. When all we have is our performance to prove that we're someone, we're driven like a slave, frantically. I have to be better. I have to. I have to be better than the next guy. I have to do whatever it takes to prove that I'm valuable. And we go down all sorts of alleys to prove that, right? These kind of people whose value, and perform, whose value is resting on their performance, they can never be wrong. Never, 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 never show weakness. They are utterly, utterly exhausted and often very angry, bitter people. You know why? Because they're being driven like slaves. The law is like a taskmaster whipping their back every time they fail. And they think, I just got to try harder. I just got to try harder. And then if they actually succeed in doing it, if they're actually good at it, like they're the kind of people that can obey the rules, right? And then when the love and mercy of God is extended, they're outraged. How dare you be given what I've earned? That was the state of the older brother. And this is the second way we rebel from God right in the midst of religion. When we think that it's resting on our rightness and then when, God, when God's love and mercy is extended to people, we're outraged. Listen, religion, y'all, does the same thing that everything else in life does. It separates people by capabilities and intelligence and strength. And those who can perform, the strong ones, the intellectual ones, they rise to the top and they look down their nose at all those who can't and inevitably plot things like ethnic cleansing and eugenics. That is the natural consequence of a works-based life. I made myself awesome, and if you can't, you're worthless. And that thinking wiggles its way into our Christian life, doesn't it? When we think, I made myself awesome, I obeyed, why can't you? Get it together, right? I know this sounds so foreign to Christian living, <laughs> right? But this description is honestly how many people think of Christianity and function as Christians in the world. They're desperately trying to establish their own rightness by religious action because they haven't experienced the power of the gospel. They've not jumped. And therefore, they have no real love for others. They're annoyed by humanity. Are you annoyed by humanity? When you go to the mall... Oh, look at all these people. Where did they come from? <laughs> the traffic. Oh, another apartment building. Ah, oh, what streets are these people going to stray on? You know, some Christians have talked about the city as the place where the most images of God are per square mile. And therefore, Christians throughout history have been driven into cities <laughs> because it's convenient, because it's safer to raise your kids. No, they've been driven towards the masses because of the compassion of Jesus. How do you look at humanity, friends? Because if in your heart is contempt for those around you, if you are filled with annoyance and frustration, I just want to slide this across the table. The gospel has not gripped you, friend. And you may be in this room for the wrong reasons because the gospel changes everything, everything. How you look at yourself, how you look at others. If you don't serve others, if you just think everyone else needs to work as hard as you did, if you don't forgive because you can, you know, like you need to earn charity, right? Or most clearly, we see this in our life when there is no joy or no worship. There's no joy 
and worship in someone's life who has earned it themselves because they are to credit. The gospel creates worshipers. The gospel creates people who are, will live the entirety of their lives. The, the gospel creates the kind of person who says, I am change in God's pocket. He can spin me however he wants. That's what the gospel creates, right? If the gospel is true, if it was the choice of God to pursue and forgive, that means that anything we do can only ever be responding to him and therefore nullifies the ability for you to take credit. Do you see it? That doesn't mean you don't have a choice. You do have a choice. The choice is before you, but the gospel means God chose first. And your choice is only in response to his choice. And it claims, the Bible claims that he did choose. He did choose. In Jesus, he chose to pursue you. In Jesus, he chose to love you sacrificially all the way to the end. Over the next couple weeks, we're going to explore how the gospel, the overarching narrative of scripture, can profoundly, deeply transform the kind of person you are. But if you're here today, and this is the first time you've heard the gospel like this, you thought it was all about your effort. You, th you, thought, you thought, man, I thought it was up to me. And if you're honest, you're kind of tired and maybe a little angry, right? And maybe you're someone who can explain it all, but it does not seem real to you. I want to give you the opportunity to jump. And I would imagine it feels just about as scary as jumping out of a real plane. But secondly, if you're here today and didn't know this is what the Bible teaches, you thought it was just the same as other religions, and you don't consider yourself a Christian, uh, but... If this is true, you want in on it. I want in on that. If this is true, if this is the gospel, that he loves me without condition, outside of my performance, I want in on that. Dude, you can begin that journey today. And it's actually really, really simple. It just starts by receiving his forgiveness. Asking God for forgiveness and inviting him in, not in theory, but in how you actually live, to be the king of your heart, yielding and surrendering. So we're going to come to the table like we do every week, y'all.